I don't know about you, but times are changing fast. I remember uh, being very young and watching pieces of the movie uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey on TV, and that seemed like that was really far in the future. 2001's way behind us now. We're heading into 2013 in just two days. Uh, In fact, about a month ago or more, I was looking at a website, uh, msn.com, they had a story on 26 things that they believe will be obsolete in 10 years as things change very fast. Here are just a a sampling of those things that they feel are going to be obsolete in 10 years. First, uh, newspapers. You know, a lot of us get our uh, news online, um, television, on our phone, get other places. Some of us still get the newspaper delivered, but many of us do not. And that's going to happen less and less. Speaking of news, what about magazines? Magazines are going away, especially Newsweek magazine. If you haven't heard, this week is the last issue ever of Newsweek magazine. It's going online starting next week. There will, never, there will not be a publication of Newsweek magazine anymore. This one might be a good one, car keys. I've read that you're going to be able to have like a keypad or um, a different way to get into your car and then a push button to start your car. So um, you won't have to worry about losing your keys. You'll just have to remember another code to get into your car. So what about the post office? You know, now we can get our stamps a lot of different places. You can get stamps at the grocery store, online, um, and we get packages delivered in different ways. So they say that the actual location of a post office may be obsolete in years ahead. And then finally, neckties. Um, I lost mine between services, so uh, I don't know. Oh, there's some clapping over here from this section. I know some of you guys have neckties. I still like wearing a tie. I do know that we, uh, especially if you don't know, if the second service, typically the pastors are going to dress down a little bit as we move this service to be more and more contemporary. But neckties are kind of, they're kind of going away. So many things are becoming obsolete. But as I mentioned to the uh, four o'clock service on Christmas Eve, Um, Do we wonder, are the stories of Scripture becoming obsolete? Are the stories of Scripture becoming obsolete? And, you know, we come to church for many reasons. Um, We come to church, you know, for fellowship, to see people we know. Uh, You may bring your kid. Your kids may think that they come to church to get a donut. Um, That's a good reason to come. But we really should come to church because it matters. You know, it's relevant Church is not obsolete, that you come here to get fed as you hear the word of God, as you talk about it, as you discuss it, as you share in prayers and in song with other Christians, church matters and your faith matters. So speaking of that, we're going to read God's word as it is in Luke chapter 2. Amy alluded to that already earlier. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40, the passage starts out on the eighth day. This is the eighth day after Jesus' birth. So it's just a week after his birth, much as we are here today on December 30th. Hear the word of God. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. 
and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. So as we look at the story, we're going to take a look. Are these characters in this story, are they obsolete? Do they matter? And if they do matter, which we're going to say that they do, how do they matter then to us today? What can we take from them from 2,000 years ago and apply to us today? Well, first of all, what about Mary and Joseph and the baby? You know, here's, we've got a teen mom, maybe in her mid-teens, maybe as young as 15, 16, 17, and a young husband with a baby. And they've had, they had to travel away uh, to give birth to the baby in Bethlehem. You know, how do they fit into the culture? Are they even accepted? Most likely they're not very accepted. And so how do they fit? What's their role in the story? What about Simeon? Here's this older man who stays a lot at the temple and people may wonder what he's like. He's a man that he says he hears from the Holy Spirit that God speaks to him. Do people trust him? Is he someone that we should trust? Well, what about Anna? Anna's there with Simeon. You see the picture of Simeon holding the baby Jesus and Anna standing behind. It says in the scripture, Anna was 84 years old and she was a prophetess. She was a prophet speaking for God. Did people really trust her in that? Did they believe her? And plus, she's 84 years old. You know, does she still have meaning in her life for that culture? Well, let's focus on why we believe that they do matter and matter very much. First of all, they are people who are righteous. In verse 25, it says this about Simeon. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. Well, what is righteousness? Righteousness can be defined as leading a life that's pleasing to God, uh, straightness, uh, being upright, 
or as Amy mentioned with the kids, living by faith and belief. Righteousness is a chief attribute of God. The Hebrew word for righteous, tzedek, is used approximately 500 times in the Old Testament. And the similar word, dikaios, in Greek, is used approximately 200 times in the New Testament. It's an important concept both as an attribute of God and to us. Now we know after the time of Christ that we can't be righteous unless Jesus helps us. In Romans, it says several verses about this. Paul speaks about it often. He says, therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. In Romans 3.22, the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And then backing up a little bit, Romans 1.17, the righteous will live by faith. And yet we still see these characters, especially Simeon, who's declared righteous. How are they righteous even before salvation through Christ? In a sense, they are imparted righteousness because they have belief. And as we're going to see, you know, their belief um, is not something that's just uh, uh, heartfelt or headfelt. It's something that they act upon. It's something that they live. They show their faith by the way that they live. Let's look again at uh, how they live by faith and what their roles are in this story. Well, first, the baby. How can a baby, you know, matter? Is it, does a baby eight days old, does, it, does, a, does a little baby matter? Well, it does because we know the rest of the story is that Jesus was born of a virgin, was sinless, unlike us, remained sinless his whole life so that he could die for our sins. So even now, the baby matters very much and is central to the entire story. What about Mary and Joseph? What did they do? How did they live? They believed God. They followed the law and they presented the child Jesus to God. They believed. Earlier in Luke chapter 1, Mary said, may it be to me as you have said. She believed God through the angel Gabriel and then she lived it out. And Joseph, Joseph was told by an angel in a dream that God was telling him not to leave Mary not to divorce her quietly as he wanted to do, but to stay with her, even to stay with her, to take her to Bethlehem where the baby would be born. So each of them did uh, what the angel had commanded them. The angel speaking for God had commanded them. They not only believed what they heard, they acted upon it. And then in this passage, they bring Jesus as they are uh, supposed to do by command, by the law, to consecrate him in Jerusalem. In effect, to dedicate him, um, to bring a sacrifice and to obey the law. So we see Joseph and Mary, you know, humble, young, poor, teenage parents. And yet here they are. What's their example for us? They listen to God. When God speaks to them through a miraculous way, through an angel, they listen. And not only do they listen, They obey. They obey to even go to different places, to Bethlehem and then to Jerusalem. They obey God. They show and demonstrate their faith. As young as Joseph and Mary are and as wherever wherever we are and whatever season of life we are, do we have that same kind of faith? What about on the other end of the spectrum? We've seen the very young. What about the very old? What about Simeon? Simeon is described in this short passage as devout, righteous, and a man who listened to the Holy Spirit. He's devout. He's totally committed to a cause or belief. His whole life is committed to listening to God. 
And God had promised him that he would see the Messiah before he dies. He was faithful, he was righteous, and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And even as an old man, he is still listening to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is moving in him. And then when he hears from the Holy Spirit, he's not afraid to act. He sees Jesus and immediately takes him into his arm, and he blesses him. And he says, he will be a light to the Gentiles and glory for Israel. Do we listen um, for the Holy Spirit? Do we listen to the Holy Spirit as much as Simeon did? Well, what about Anna? Anna, even a shorter part about Anna there at the end of Luke chapter 2, it says these things about Anna. She worshiped night and day. She fasted and prayed, and then she gave thanks to God. She's 84 years old. She's been a widow for a long time. You know, she could have retired and gone down to a sea community down in the Mediterranean Sea or somewhere else. But no, she stayed at the temple. Now, she may not have had a choice being a poor widow. She may have stayed there because that was her only means of support. But uh, in any way, she stays at the temple and is faithful to God. And she's not just there at the temple. We don't see her at the temple being told in the story that she's begging. It says she worships. She worships night and day. She prays and she fasts. For us, do we need to go to the temple every day to, uh, to pray and to worship God? We don't. You're here in church today to pray and to worship as we have already done together. But you can do that. I can do that wherever we are. So may we be encouraged as Anna did to worship and to pray night and day. Do we fast as Anna did? <clears throat> Fasting is not something I'm, I do often, but I'm encouraged by this story to re-engage in fasting. Fasting is the giving up of something, maybe food, in order to focus on God, to be in prayer to him, often about a specific person, uh, a purpose, a specific purpose. We often think of fasting from food, but you could fast from uh, noise. There's so much noise in our world. You may think about turning off all the things in your life for a period of time. Maybe it's for a half of a day or for a whole day of trying to eliminate as much noise as you can in order to listen for God to speak to you. What about electronics? What if we take a fast for a period of time from electronics in order to listen for God and to listen to God, what he's saying to each of us? When Anna sees Jesus, she gives thanks to God. Do we give thanks to God? And I realized as I was thinking about this just this past week, uh, about a month ago, I had a list of three or four key prayers. And I, these were important to me enough that I had written them down. I'd put them on a <clears throat> a piece of paper on my desk and I had them there close by and so I would see them often and I realized <clears throat> about a week later that God had answered all those prayers but I hadn't given him thanks so as I was reading this passage I had to confess God that I was not as thankful as I should be and that's something that I need in my life that when God hears me when God answers my prayers that I need to first be thankful for him to answer prayers my prayers before I celebrate the good things that have happened. So we see in this story, both the young and the old, we see everyone making the choices, the righteous choices, the right choices to follow God's command. Well, how can we be righteous? How are we to live? Well, Jesus, as he becomes a man and as he becomes our savior, he speaks. And in Matthew 6, he says this, Matthew 6, verse 33. 
But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You know, in the passage preceding that, it talks about a lot of the things that we can worry about, you know, just day-to-day things. What are we going to wear? What are we going to eat? What are we going to have in our lives? And yet Jesus says, don't worry about all those things. Um, Seek first my kingdom and righteousness and all those other things. They will be taken care of. He goes on to say, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So much as we say in the Lord's Prayer, can we say to God, can we say, um, uh, God, take care of me today and help me today to seek you first and everything else can fall into place. What about you and I? What are some practical steps? What are some things that we can do? Here are some things that we can do. First of all, to realize and to accept that we are righteous by faith alone. As we said earlier, you know, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of uh, God's purpose. But we are righteous uh, because of Jesus, because he saves us, because he forgives our sins. And let's take advantage of the fact that we are in God's family and live with the example um, that Jesus uh, gives us and that the Bible gives us through Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna. We also see that God uses everyone who is available and that God uses all ages. He uses Joseph and Mary, an unlikely couple, an unlikely pair. We see him in this short passage um, using Simeon and Anna to proclaim that the Messiah is here. They knew who they were talking about when they saw him. We see that God uses everyone, young and old, men and women. I'm working on a team right now at church, um, kind of a task force kind of team. We're talking about local missions at ZPC and how in uh, in 2013 can we do a better job of connecting all of you and me and all of us together with local missions. Well, on this task force, there's one man at our last meeting, he described himself as a doer, that he likes to see when there's an emergency or a need and he can answer the call He can get on the phone and pull some people together and he can fix whatever's broken. He can take care of the need, especially in a fix. Another man on the team said that he is a planner. In fact, he said he likes to even have a plan to go out to lunch before he goes out to lunch. He's a planner. He likes strategies. He likes to lay out a plan of how to do things. And so for 2013, he's gonna help this team lay out a plan to help involve more of you in local missions. But we need both the planner and the doer to accomplish the team. God uses everyone. God uses the young and the old, the men and the women. God uses the planner and the doer. We also wanna let you know that in January and February, we're gonna talk to you more about, we're gonna talk together more about um, what it means to be a disciple. We're gonna live and we're gonna talk about and study in those two months, January and February, the six marks of a disciple, and we're gonna study that, what that looks like for each of us, how we can seek God first um, in all the areas of our lives. We're also gonna try, try to be more intergenerational in 2013 and beyond. And this is really important to us. Um, and we had our youth band up here, they did a great job. There's research showing that, uh, a lot of research, that one out of every two, that half 
of all teenagers, when they graduate from high school, they also graduate from church. And for most of them, they don't come back. So what happens there? They're finding a lot of the research is that a lot of teens don't feel connected to the big church as a whole. They don't feel like they don't feel like it belongs to them, that it's their church. And so one of the recommendations that I, that I heard um, at a uh, seminar just a couple of weeks ago when I went with Josh Migat and Joyce Sullivan, our youth leaders, we heard that it used to be that you would say we would need a one to five ratio for kids or teens, one adult for every five teens. That would be great for youth group. They're now saying, wouldn't it be great if we have five adults for every one teen that provides a touch in some way before they graduate from high school. Now, that may not mean that you all need to go sign up to be youth leaders, but it may mean in the future we're going to try to design things so that our kids and our youth and our adults of all ages interact more on things like local missions or things around the church or when we do all church things. We're going to try to figure out how we can do that better so that we can um, have our kids feel that the church is theirs as well. And so when they graduate from high school, they're going to say, that's my church. And that's my faith, and I own it, and I'm coming back. Finally, um, I thought this was a great uh, way to think about how do we seek God first in every area of our lives. Um, This is a book called Destined. It's one of our uh, four books that we use for one-to-one ministry. And uh, on one of the pages just a couple of weeks ago, I was reading in this with one of my one-to-one partners. It talked about developing an eternal perspective Um, And so it had list things. You check the things. Do you think these things uh, provide an eternal perspective? Here are some of those. Learning the word of God. Becoming a partner or CEO at your company. Discovering a cure for cancer. Owning a home. uh, Pastoring a megachurch. Having lots of friends. uh, Maintaining a 4.0 grade point average in school. And they list a lot of other things. And as I thought about it, I said, well, I can check some of these, I think, are good for eternity. Well, maybe some of those are, maybe some aren't. So I read down farther in the page, and it made an observation. Some of these marked items need to pass a motive test. In other words, what motivates me to do these? Is it for my honor or for God's glory? That's a great question. Do I do the things I do for my honor or for God's glory? So as we look to the year 2013 and we think about seeking God first and as we look at the examples, uh, the examples that we've seen today in Joseph and Mary and Simeon and Anna, um, let's ask the question, do I do the things that I do? Do I plan the things that I plan? Are those things um, for my honor or for God's glory? And let's keep asking that with each other next year. I usually don't do New Year's resolutions, but here's maybe a couple ideas if you do. In 2013, what about living young and courageous, listening to God and obeying God like Joseph and Mary? Or what about growing old and faithful, being consistent in prayer and worship and listening to God through the Holy Spirit like Simeon and Anna? Let us pray. Most loving God, we just give you thanks for this chance that we've had this opportunity to come together. And God, I thank you for each person in this room. God, they're here for a reason. God, they've come into this place, maybe it's for a fellowship or to be with family, 
to see maybe the ordination of a family member or a friend and to be there to support them. And yet, God, we also come to hear you. And so, God, we trust that your word is the true word of God. And God, as we've sung the songs that you've heard our praises and as we've prayed the prayers that you've heard our prayers. So, God, as we move from this day to the next, help us to keep listening to your Holy Spirit, to obeying where, you've, where you're calling us to go, to continue to be consistent in prayer and in worship and in following you wherever you lead us. Lord, give us the strength and the courage to do those things. And Lord, when we fall down, as we know that we will, we, we will fail to help us to get back up, to ask forgiveness, and to walk forward with you as you lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand if you would uh, for the benediction. <clears throat>